because criteria uh, for autism specifically, but also for many other kind of related differences, were developed on rich white boys. I'm not a rich white boy. And uh, a lot of women are missed because women exhibit uh, autistic characteristics differently. Women are much more likely to mask and try to please people and just contort ourselves into pretzel to be something that we're not, to meet those social expectations. So we tend to try very hard. And in general, we just uh, have different manifestations and we don't fit stereotypes. So uh, a lot of girls are missed for that reason. Welcome to Inclusion and Marketing, the show that's all about helping you develop the skills you need to win the attention, adoration, and loyalty of more consumers, especially those with differences that are often ignored by brands. I'm your host, Sonia Thompson, an inclusive brand coach, strategist, consultant, and someone with a lot of differences. Let's get to it. Okay, I've got another podcast recommendation for you. It's Latinx in Power, hosted by Thaisa Fernandez. It's brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. This podcast features interviews with top-level executives, entrepreneurs, and innovators from Latin America, aiming to demystify the tech industry by providing listeners with insider perspectives and insight from Latin American leaders who have succeeded in their fields. I like listening to this podcast because I like hearing from a broad diversity of voices and hearing from and learning from their experiences. One episode I'm super excited to dive into is the latest one, Lead Generation Journey with Glenville Dixon Jr. Listen to Latinx Empower wherever you get your podcasts. I saw a stat recently that said that 20% of the world's population is neurodivergent. That's one in five people who were diagnosed with dyslexia, dyspraxia, ADHD, and autism. It is very likely that we work with, have colleagues, and people in our networks who are neurodivergent. So it's important to understand more about it so we know how to make them feel like they belong with us and our businesses. So in this episode, I sat down with not one, not two, but three experts on neurodivergence who've recently opened a consultancy together to help more brands make their neurodivergent team members feel like they belong. This episode is part one in a two-part series. Part two is focused on serving neurodivergent consumers and will be coming your way in a few weeks. So without further ado, here's Lamilla, Aviva, and Caroline. Okay. Hello. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm excited because we've got a discussion. I think this is my first time on the podcast having three guests at the same time. So, and I've got a really important topic, but before we dig in too much, I just want to bring everyone in on who are you all and what do you do? I'm Ludmila Praslova. I'm a professor of psychology and uh, I teach graduate organizational psychology. I've studied various organizational applications of culture and diversity my pretty much entire life. And uh, my focus right now is on neurodiversity in the workplace. So that particular focus really is uh, why this conversation is happening and why we're also working together. 
Hi, my name is Caroline Stokes. I am the founder of Forward. Uh, we've all come together because we all have a great interest in neurodiversity, uh, but my background is in executive coaching, working in headhunting, working in marketing and launching various brands in the 90s and working really within organizations uh, most recently to adapt their uh, organizational psychology, uh, leadership development and so on. So it's a great pleasure to actually work with my two colleagues um, I'm going to hand you over to Aviva. Great. Thanks so much. Hi, my name is Aviva Leggett. Um, I'm so pleased to be with my two colleagues here. Uh, I'm an author. Uh, I do educational consulting and coaching as well. Um, and we've all come together because we're very passionate about the topic of neurodiversity. And the reason that there are three of us is that um, not that we can seek to represent all perspectives, but at least in representing three different perspectives of neurodiversity, we can have a fuller picture of what that is and what that could look like in the workplace. Absolutely. Well, I love that we're really having, featuring the various lenses. Like you said, it's it's hard to, whenever you're talking about um, groups, especially how groups that often get lumped together, it's really nice to have the different perspectives because no one is ever the same, right? So neurodiversity at work is really the topic that we have that we're focusing on today. But for those of people who might not be aware, what does it mean to be neurodivergent? Well, there are so many definitions because uh, when we started talking about neurodiversity, it started with autistic culture and uh, trying to disband some of the myths and stereotypes. But really, it's a much broader idea about human diversity, and we're all psychologically different. So you can be different from what's expected by certain societal standards because you have more intense emotional life. Or you can be different from societal standards because you don't like lying and the average person lies multiple times every day. That can put you in a situation where society is actually suspicious of you because everybody <laughs> lies and when you don't, uh, they actually don't look very highly on you. So that is the basic idea that people are different in many ways, but some of those ways can be more privileged in society. So that's what we're trying to address in the workplace, and we're trying to create workplaces where those human differences are welcome, which is why all of us three came together, because we're all three different ways of how neurodiversity can manifest in the individual. And in addition to our different experiences with corporate life and with global diversity and with education, uh, we also bring very different types of neurodiversity. So that's what we're trying to also show the companies that you bring all those different neurodivergent talents and magic happens. For sure. We're trying to uh, bring it to other organizations so they could respect and welcome all the different talents. For sure. Now, are there... Is neurodiversity or neurodivergent a newer term or is it, is it a clinical term? How are the ways in which, like the way in which people talk about it or they, um, the terms that they use or how they are identifying, do they say neurodivergent or is they might be using a variety of different other terms? The terms are complicated. And since I just wrote a chapter from my book about that, I'm going to take it okay. and I'll try to step back from talking. Okay. 
But um, the term neurodiversity, actually we know the date, originated in late 90s and 1998 is when it first appeared in publication. And it's not a medical term. It was actually a rebellion against uh-huh. a medical perspective on specifically autism at that time okay. as pathology, but it was very quickly also applied to ADHD, dyslexia, dyspraxia, Tourette's, and then to many other kinds of human differences. Okay. And uh, the idea was to get rid of pathologizing medical terminology and to have neurodiversity movement actually as a political movement. So when Judy Singer wrote her thesis, her idea was actually sociological and political rather than medical. And uh, it uh, stemmed from a social model of disability that there is nothing wrong, for example, with me having more sensitive hearing than other people, but it can be disabling because the world is ridiculously loud. Or when you're stuck in the open office with no escape and can't work. The, it's not the disability to be able to hear things, but it's a disability when society doesn't allow you any quiet. Got so it. it's actually showing that we're not necessarily a problem. The problem is that society doesn't welcome and accommodate certain types of people as much as it does to other people. Got it. I love that reframing there, but it's because it's like society has decided that certain things are quote unquote normal. Um, so anything that exactly. falls outside of that means that you have you are the problem. You have some 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 sort of issue, but it's really not the case at all. It's just that society has deemed one way is the right way, and we shouldn't be looking at this is right, this is wrong. There are just different ways of operating. Exactly. Right. And I think a big challenge to navigating all this is that, you know, these differences are really invisible to people. And so what looks like, you know, bad behavior or somebody not getting along or failing to collaborate or not being a team player, you know, it's not always uh, that they're neurodivergent, but there could be just a different way of of viewing uh, workplace norms or viewing the importance of those norms. And the fact that there are uh, about 20% of the population is neurodivergent, you know, think about how many people there are out there working in different companies, capacities, organizations that are neurodivergent that are really struggling because they are continuously feeling like they're falling behind, they're lagging, they're not able to uh, connect with their coworkers in the same way, or they're unable to complete their work role um, in the exact manner it's expected because uh, there's just a disconnect there. So For sure. I think one of the reasons that we're all passionate about bringing this issue to bear and, and really helping people understand neurodiversity and the importance of neurodivergent perspectives is that, you know, really to help people rethink some of those misunderstandings and help them to navigate cognitive differences and really recognizing that this could be a factor in their dynamic with any individual or group. Right. Now, I started to see a lot more people. I don't know if you all have seen this, but I've started to see a lot more people on social media in particular talking about that they just discovered that they were neurodivergent as an adult. Um, And there are other people who are like, well, maybe I've kind of felt this way. Sometimes people are actually getting a diagnosis from a medical professional and sometimes people are not. Like, are there reasons why people seem to be getting diagnosed or discovering that they are neurodivergent later in life 
Is this something that develops? Like, how, how does this whole sort of whole thing work? How does it play out for you? Mm. Well, I'd like to out us all okay. <laughs> uh, to answer that question as well, because if you recall, well, for me, I was diagnosed with ADHD in my mid to late 40s. Okay. Uh, Aviva, when were you diagnosed? Uh, within the last couple of years, because my son was uh, diagnosed as autistic. So then I started learning about neurodivergence and autism. And then I discovered through that, that I have ADHD. I know you've said, Caroline, with a touch of autism, possibly for me too, but I think I'm, I'm certainly more, um, more fall in line with the ADHD criteria. And, mm. you know, despite on paper successes, you know, I can say I've had a lot of struggles to keep mm-hmm. up and sort of produce what I have to do and yeah. sort of being able to recognize that what I have struggled with, you know, has sort of shaped me, right? And also, right. you know, hindered me in other ways. It just makes me appreciate how important it is to have a world where people do recognize that there are barriers for some people. And and people might look at me and say, oh, no, there are no barriers for you. You've accomplished so much, but that's just not it. You know, that's not my lived experience uh, all of the time. You know, life is not social media highlights and book release parties and all of that, right? Like there are a lot of day-to-day things that, that people don't see. Um, and then likewise, being a parent of a neurodivergent child, of an autistic child, you know, I see him struggling to to learn and he's only five years old. And I can see how, you know, his certain rigidities, like, they make his teachers really mad. And I'm like, oh my gosh, he's going to piss off so many people for a really long time. And hopefully one day he'll wake up and realize like, you know, in some situations, maybe I just need to like dial it back a little bit from time to time. But right now when they're kids, you know, they're just themselves. They can't be anything else. And you can just see that and how that has been a struggle for him and how he's uh, progressed through his schooling so far. Definitely. And in my case, I also discovered I was autistic in my late 40s. And then I got the official diagnosis. But uh, I'm a psychologist. Not Oh, I'm not a clinical psychologist. But actually, lots of clinical psychologists also discovered about themselves. Because criteria uh, for autism specifically, but also for many other kind of related differences, were developed on rich white boys. I'm not a rich white boy. (laughs) And uh, a lot of women are missed because women exhibit uh, autistic characteristics differently. Women are much more likely to mask and try to please people and just contort ourselves into pretzel to be something that we're not, to meet those social expectations. We tend to try very hard. And in general, we just I have different manifestations and we don't fit stereotypes. So uh, a lot of girls are missed for that reason. A lot of boys, but not white boys, but all, uh, you know, black and brown boys are missed because traditionally they were given a different diagnosis. For example, uh, oppositional defiant disorder rather than autism. That is changing. Uh, in the later years, uh, were diagnostic of you know anyone outside of that particular uh, affluent white boy stereotype. But for a long time, it's been something that really precluded diagnostic 
But also in my case is that when I was growing up, there was basically no awareness anyway. So lots of people, unless they had, you know, very, very, very clear manifestations and they were probably diagnosed with something else, uh, were just simply... Like I was told, you know, stop being a princess on the pee because I have very significant sensory sensitivities and people would just, you know, oh, stop making it up. It doesn't bother anybody else. So just like, you know, deal with it. And now I realize that those things are still bothering me as much as I try to ignore them. But even as uh, identification improved over time, it was still not considering all the groups equally. And then it's also not easy, not cheap to access in many places, in many circumstances. So yeah. many people and many fam- families just simply don't have the means. No. So many important issues that you brought up and that I think that we can end up talking about some of these things for, for such a long period of time. That's why I'm happy to have you for two parts for this discussion. But so let's go dive into a little bit of more where the focus is for today. And that's all about neurodiversity at work. So what are the benefits of having neurodivergent talent on your team? I heard I heard somebody say earlier that you're kind of labeled like, the problem person at work, right? Which, you know, is unfortunate that people are labeled that way at all. But like, what are this, the benefits of, of having neuro, neurodivergent talent on the team? Well, when you stop trying to force everyone, you know, <laughs> round pegs into square holes or vice versa, you find those talents. People think in unique ways. Mm-hmm. People bring unique creativity, uh, different perspectives. So uh, definitely just, energy, creativity, everyone is very different. So we all bring different mixes of talents. You shouldn't stereotype or say that, you know, all autistics are good in tech. That's my today's article. But there is like any kind of diversity brings a lot of additional perspective. Sorry, Caroline, go ahead. No, uh, what you said is absolutely fantastic. What I wanted to add from a from a, from an experiential perspective as well is that when people understand that there are a, there's diversity of thought within an organization or within a team, and one is able to accept that, overcome biases that people might have, or overcome stereotypes, great things can happen. But it requires an awful lot of self modulation to be able to really understand that and to have an open mind. It takes a lot of work by the leader and obviously the other other team players as well to be accepting of different types of input, different types of and all the context that comes from it. Um, so they're the benefits, um, but the challenges are in terms of either from a talent perspective or a leader perspective is that we still have a long way to go because of those biases that we have uh, in, in the workplace, in the environment, from a cultural perspective. An organization may say, this is how we do things, and they may hold certain values, but that they may not necessarily craft those values to the different types of brains that are within the organization and all the different, uh, with all of the different backgrounds and experiences that they're able to bring. So the bottom line there is that it takes an awful lot of work for a leader, team players, everybody within the ecosystem to be able to observe, adapt, and accept all of the different behaviors that can come into uh, an organization to be, so that they can collaborate and innovate to create all of those ideal outcome states. Sure. I love that you said that we all have different brains. And mm-hmm. I think it's easy to accept that, oh, we have different people who have different hair types. We have different people who have different areas of expertise. 
we have different people who are come from different racial and ethnic backgrounds, different genders, et cetera. But you rarely hear people talk about, oh, we have different brains in terms of the way our brains function. And I think that's a really fascinating way to look at it because it just kind of shows that there's such a breadth of uh, depth of diversity that exists and we need to start expanding the way we think about it um, and the way that people show up. And like you said, not try to fit, you know, everybody into this uh, square hole, like, because everybody isn't square, right? Um, 100%. In a number of fronts. And if everybody went into the organization like that, or went into an assignment or a project or whatever big task that needs to needs to be um, worked on, if everybody can come into that with that mindset, great things can happen. Absolutely. The I, A lot of fantastic things have been said. The only thing I would add, and, you know, Ludmilla talks and writes a lot about this, is really just this idea of the systemic inclusion of neurodiversity in the organization, right? To even recognize that this is a, that this is a thing. So not just to recognize it in the moment and, you know, accommodate or accept it, but really to create mechanisms by which it almost becomes like it's not even a thing, right? Okay. Where, you know, we're more outcomes focused, let's say, for example, or we accept that people have different ways of communicating and we allow for that, right? And so the the sorts of infrastructure that you that, uh, that organizations can set up can really be inclusive of all different types of brains and all different types of people. And so I think it's really getting down to that infrastructure of organization and, and, looking at the bones of that and and using that as kind of the operating system from which to make change within organization rather than sort of like, you know, I don't think any of us are here saying like, oh, you all, you, anybody listening needs to accommodate neurodivergent people. That's not necessarily the point or the goal. It's really to, to step back and look systemically at how the organization is functioning and how you're even paying attention to this issue and presence of neurodiversity in your organization and how you are creating systems that allow people to do their best work, no matter what their brain, uh, I don't want to say look like, but how their brains yeah. operate right. um, and what that what those behaviors look like in practice. Okay, I love that. So, because my next question was going to be, how would you even know if you have somebody who's neurodivergent on your team? Like, do you need to be asked? Like, it, it comes down to this really sort of weird odd sort of um, self-identification. But what you're saying is we don't even need to do that if we acknowledge that people's brains operate differently and we set up the way in which we work to accommodate the various forms of operation. And that way everyone is has the ability to thrive rather than having to call out a way in which they might be different, especially because everybody doesn't want to have to do that, right? Exactly. We create flexible organizations that are able to uh, focus on outcomes and let people work in ways that work with their brain, work with their personality. Uh, If we need to work asynchronously, if we need to work at our own pace, we're all able to contribute. And that takes away this necessity for self-disclosure. Because right now, if you're asking for accommodations, you need to self-disclose, and most people don't. And for a good reason, because we do know that there is discrimination and you might be forced out if you self-disclose. So uh, people really expand a lot of energy sometimes 
uh, making sure people, others don't suspect and they just exhaust themselves with all the social uh, attempts to fit in instead of focusing on their jobs. Because again, most organizations are not safe. If we make organizations safe, but also make them flexible enough and outcomes oriented enough where people can just do their work and be uh, evaluated based on their work and not all the, you know, water cooler stuff, stuff that will create organizations that are both more productive and a lot less stressful. And we don't have to necessarily disclose if we don't have to, because organizations are already flexible and we don't need uh, special accommodations for someone. Because another problem with accommodations with neurodivergent people, because uh, our difficulties are not visible, then other people actually get really mad and start bullying you if you get accommodations. And uh, because people are envious, oh, this person gets a quiet office or this person gets to work from home. Well, I'm mad because I want that. So just give it to everybody if it facilitates everybody's work so that we don't have to beg for accommodations because they're not really accommodations. They're just things that allow us to work on our best and everyone should have it. So that's really uh, the whole idea, again, yes, I, I write a lot about those topics. And, um, <laughs> no, no, I, I love it. I love it. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. Like trying to remember the name of that guy you just met at a networking event. Was it Ron? Or could it be Don? Or John? Or Sean? Yeah, that kind of impossible. HubSpot's all-new service hub can help. Well, with the service solution part, at least. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. With an AI-powered help desk and an AI chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. And a full 360 view of every customer so your go-to-market team can keep a pulse on accounts before trying to upsell or cross-sell. Also, you can scale support and drive retention and revenue. And you know what that means. Better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit HubSpot.com service to do more for your customers today. I'm, I'm curious because I've heard you all allude to them a little bit, but I want to spell it out a little bit better. What types of flexible work environments should people be thinking about? or um, accommodations that they should make available that work for a variety of different brain types, and especially for people who are neurodivergent? What, what types of cultures or environments should they be putting in place? So I will just say one line, which is flex working, which enables the, the person in an organization to be able to choose whether or not to be in the office environment to be able to conduct their work or to be able to do it wherever they need to be able to do it. Okay. That is the bottom line from my perspective to enable the person to be able to decide how, how they're best able to create best possible outcomes. Ludmilla. Okay. Well, there is flexibility of space, which is huge. There's also flexibility of time. Some are morning people, some are evening people. And even if you have shift work, allow people to pick their own shift. In most jobs, why, why, why does someone have to send emails at 8 a.m.? What's going to change if they send them at 4 p.m.? 
for the most part, it won't, or when they put things into the asynchronous system. So there's flexibility in time, there's flexibility in place where people work. Uh, there's different mixes of hybrid. You know, sometimes we need to be uh, with people and uh, efficiently do something in a meeting, but don't do it too much. So allow whatever makes sense. One to one, four days, three, two, meeting once in two weeks, whatever works. So don't think about flexibility as just this one way. It's either work from home or nothing, or either you work 24-7 or you have to be monitored. There's just many different ways in which we'll say, okay, here's the task, do it. As long as it's done, who cares? So there yeah. are many different ways that might work for specific organizations and occupations differently. But again, even occupations that traditionally are not seen as flexible, uh, such as when you have to show up, you can be flexible and what time you can show up. Maybe some people need half-time work because uh, they need to accommodate their variety of other things in their life. There are some people who like job sharing. Why not let them do it? It's a little bit easier in Europe because... Their benefits are not tied to their job. But even in the States, there are a variety of ways to make work flexible. If someone wants to work three-quarter position, why not? So there's, there's many different ways flexibility can come into work life. Yes. And if I could just add, too, on the strategic side, um, that would provide more flexibility for different types of people, different types of brains. So one is for um, idea generation using brain writing rather than brainstorming. So if you consider like a strategy meeting and you have a bunch of people like shouting out ideas and, you know, there's a lot of potential for group thinking in that setting. And there's also potential for quieter people to be shut, shut out. So using uh, a strategy like brain writing, which is allowing people to write down their ideas on a piece of paper, put them together and, and, and share them later, that actually will eliminate bias, right? So eliminate bias of towards one idea that is from the loudest person, and it will allow other voices that it may not be heard uh, to be heard. The other um, strategic piece that I'll mention is whistleblowing. And so having a policy around whistleblowing that does not punish the whistleblower is helpful. Because I love that, you know, Ludvilla has her canary code. And so I think about when I think about whistleblowers, I think about the canaries in the room who see the problems. Um, because uh, neurodivergent people are very um, in tune with things in in a way that that other people may not be, and so we may be quicker to spot problems than other people. And so there needs to be safe channels for whistleblowers to come forward and share problems um, without them being reprimanded. Got it. So many wonderful things to consider. Um, are there any additional things around? You mentioned around communication where it was. Don't just expect people to like verbally give their opinions and thoughts in a meeting. Are there other communication recommendations that you feel like leaders should be working to implement that would be that would better support people who have different brain styles? One other portion of my model, the Canary Code that Aviva mentioned, is transparency. 
So okay. overall organizational transparency, because one of the issues specifically autistic people, but other people too encounter is that you have to guess all those unspoken norms and that oh, all those yeah. Byzantine things in the workplace that you just don't know where you're going to trip over. So if you make organizations transparent, if leadership communicates transparently, if people know what to expect, uh, that is another part that's communication and just overall ethics in the organization uh, that makes for much better, more inclusive work environment. So it's also how leaders communicate and different channels. Also, some people love videos. Other people want to read. Okay, so just publish a video on the transcript. We have the technology to do it. We just need a little bit more consideration. Got it. I love all these very practical examples. We we don't have a ton of time left, but I want to make sure that we provide some guidance and support for people who want to do a better job of making everyone on the team feel like they belong. So how would you recommend team leaders in even individual contributors who might not feel like they've got the power to make some of these changes, how, what would you recommend that they do to be that safe space for their coworkers who may be struggling with the way in which an organization is set up because of the way their brain functions that might be different from other people on the team? My quick answer is contact Ascend Talent, which is our company, um, <laughs> because that's that, that's a really great question with a with not an easy answer. Because I think the answer will depend on what's happening okay. situationally and contextually for that particular issue. You know, I guess. But what I would say, and, and invite my colleagues to jump in, would be you know, to look at these issues from a bigger lens of, well, how are we helping people to communicate? How are we helping people to collaborate? How are we making space for people to give contributions who may not contribute in extroverted ways? So I think, I think what I would do would be to surface questions in, in a specific context and try to get that, get that answer a little bit more precise. Okay. Mm. And if I can just add, if you lead a team, you are likely to have one-to-ones with your with every single employee within your team. And that is when you have the opportunity to check in with your biases, check in with uh, exactly how you're showing up. Aviva just mentioned communication, how you're communicating, and asking them some questions. Um, so, for example, in my book, Elephants Before Unicorns, Emotionally Intelligent Strategies to Save Your Company. One of the key things that I encourage every single leader to do is to ensure that when they're having one-to-ones, they ask questions such as, um, what is it that went well, uh, you know, in the past week? What is it that you would like to redo? Where is the, where, what would you like to uh, see done, uh, completed better next time around? What is it you would like to see from me as a leader? And asking all of these questions and being prepared to receive the feedback uh, without, um, you know, feeling assaulted in any way to, so that you're able to see inside that person's mind on how they're able to function in a way that will enable them to contribute in the best possible way. Yes, love it. And uh, I actually have quite a bit of teamwork in my today's article. Well, I will definitely put a link to it in the show notes so people are able to read through it and, you know, get some more thoughts on the resources and the recommendations that you put there. Because I know 
There's a lot of great information and so much more to learn that will help people um, be of support. Real quick before we wrap up, are there anything, are there any negative stereotypes or misconceptions about neurodivergent people at work that you would just like to debunk and later rest, um, you know, so that people are like, you know, like, this is, this is not it. This is not true. <laughs> Who wants to start? Oh, that's a big one, There's isn't it? There's a ton of them. You go ahead. Okay. So I'm going to start with uh, the lack of empathy because very often people say artistic people lack empathy. That's actually not true. Many artistic people actually experience empathy more intensely, even if not everyone is able to express it. And in fact, there's this dual empathy phenomenon where uh, allistic people have a hard time feeling empathy towards autistic people. So, but of course, we always blame whoever has the less power. Mm -hmm. So autistic people get blamed for not having empathy, even though uh, that actually, at the very least, works the both ways. Got it. Any others? Uh, I'd like to say one about uh, people with ADHD, where they're not able to concentrate and uh, get, get the job done. What, one of the, the realities of uh, people with ADHD is that when they are able to connect with something that they truly, truly believe in, they will hyper-focus like no other worker that you know of. Okay. If they're not focusing, if they're, if they're distracted, it's because they're getting so many signals and they're trying to work out exactly how they can tackle it because they're really trying to. I say they, I have ADHD. This is how I present. Um, I'm assessing all of these different signals simultaneously to understand exactly how I need to proceed. So it may look like procrastination. It isn't procrastination. It isn't okay. because I don't want to do the job or another ADHD person might want to do the job. It's because they're absorbing everything to get it right. Got it. Got it. Aviva? Yes. Um, I'll piggyback on something you said, Caroline, which is that, you know, that ADHD people can't get anything done um, because that's that's definitely not true. Sometimes we might get it done a little bit later. Sometimes we might get it done in a way that you didn't expect, but we're definitely very capable of that. And I would also say that the labels, whatever, ADHD, autistic pick a label, you know, the label is not going to be uniformly presented on any one person. And everybody is going to have some strengths and some challenges, regardless of the label. So if somebody tells you that they have ADHD, or that they're autistic, recognize that you may have a series of, you know, 10 assumptions in your head about what that means. And those assumptions may or may not hold true for the person that you're presented with. So I would that would be my big piece of advice on myth and misconception. Oh, wonderful advice. Any, where can people find you all um, if they want to learn more about your work and how to work with you? Yes, great. Well, you can go to LinkedIn and find Ascend Talent. So that's A-S-C-E-N-D. Next word is talent. We have a company page on LinkedIn. You can also contact us at ascendtalent3 at gmail.com. Nice. And I will have that in the show notes so people can access it easily as well. This has been such a fascinating discussion and I'm thrilled that we're going to have a part two where we're talking about um, neurodiversity and marketing and specifically on how brands can support neurodivergent consumers. Um, so it's really excited about that discussion. Um, but any parting words of wisdom for business leaders 
who want to support their neurodivergent team members in thriving at work? Don't be afraid to make mistakes. Trying and making mistakes and correcting yourself is better than not trying. It's really not as scary once you start, and we can help you with it. Love it, love it, love it. Thanks again for joining me, you all. It's been such a pleasure, and I look forward to chatting with you all soon. Thank you, Sonia. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Sonia. Ludmilla, Aviva, and Caroline had so much to share, and I'm hoping you learned some things that can help you better support your neurodivergent colleagues so they not only feel like they belong, but thrive as they work with you. That's it for this week's episode. If you like the show, I'd so appreciate it if you'd share it with a friend, colleague, or your network. It really does go a long way toward helping more people be more inclusive. Also, if you'd like to keep inclusion top of mind, join the Inclusion and Marketing newsletter, where each week I send news, stories, and additional insights in the world of inclusion and marketing. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes so you can access it quickly. You can also go to inclusionandmarketing.com. Until next time, remember, everyone deserves to have a place where they belong. Let's use our individual and collective power to ensure more people feel like they do. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you soon.